When I was in high school, there was a girl in my gym class whose name was Beth Persinger. And Beth Persinger was the, the ringleader of a small group of girls that did what they could to make gym class way less fun for me. Made fun of me, whatever. I still don't like getting up to bat. One night, Wednesday night, I went to youth group, and the youth pastor challenged every student there that night. Uh, he said, when you wake up in the morning, every single morning when you wake up, when you're laying in bed, pray, good morning, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do today? Well, the next morning, I remembered. So I'm laying there in bed, pitch black, good morning, Holy Spirit, what do you want me to do today? First thing that flashed through my mind, talk to Beth Persinger. I never said a word to the girl. She had always just talked to me, and I tried to ignore her. So I, okay. So I get up, and I'm going through my day, and, it, and it's, it's time for gym class, and so I go into the locker room to get ready. And Beth walks in, and I, I turn and look at her, and I, I said, Hi, Beth. Just two words. She said, Hello. Walked on. Got ready for gym. Never bothered me again. Just from two words. And, and since that time, I've prayed that prayer laying in bed in the morning, and I've never had such a clear answer as I had that day. Um, but, but I learned from that that God wants to work in our lives, but he wants us to invite him to do that and then to participate with him in it. And that's what I've never forgotten. Thank you, Jenny. I'm excited about the city. In fact, one of the things I'm most excited about that screen of the friends showing up is the fact that my daughter, after three weeks, accepted my friend request. <laughs> Took three weeks, but she finally accepted it. And could I encourage you, did you notice that there were a bunch of uh, grayed-out pictures? I know that you don't look that way. And one of the beauties of this is that we can actually get to know people better and remember faces better. If you put your pictures there, it would be really helpful. So I want to encourage you to do that and just get involved. Over the next few weeks, uh, the reason we did that this, this morning is over the next few weeks, we're going to be telling you a little bit about what the city can do. But each week on the city, we're going to be posting th simple instructions like this on how to find a friend, how to find a group, how to invite your friends to a party. All that kind of stuff we're going to actually have showing up on the city in simple format like that. They have their own help section. I found it helpful sometimes and less than helpful at other times. So we're creating some of our own help to make it easier for you to use it. So be looking for that stuff if you're on the city each week. We'll be putting at least one or two tips up a week and uh, to help you enjoy that process. Well, today... We're still in Mark 2, and starting in verse 13, so let's, let's just read the scripture. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, and actually Luke has a passage that records the same event, and Luke says that Levi initiated the uh, putting on of a large banquet, invited Jesus and all of his disciples and followers and all of Levi's friends as well to the house. And many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have, come not to, I have not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners. Lord, I pray that uh, you would just help us to see the beauty of what you did and what's recorded here uh, for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're shifting gears as we continue to look at the real Jesus, and the next few weeks we're going to look at a number of passages which, to me, provide some of the most provocative and most practical things that Jesus has done yet in his ministry as we've been looking at the real Jesus and Mark. And the reason we're looking at the real Jesus, remember, is, is just simply this, because, because it's so easy for us to have our own ideas of who Jesus is. And we want to know who he really is. And we've talked about before uh, in this time we've been talking about Jesus, the fact that Jesus actually spends more of his time attacking and speaking against religion than he does about sin and people who are caught in sin. It's a really important, important thing. Now, he's clear on sin. Jesus is very clear on sin. Sin is anything that, that we do that's against his will for us. And, and that's not an arbitrary, we create rules to make your life miserable will. It's he's created and wired us in a certain way that when we operate the way he wired us, we find the peace, the joy, the love, the, the stuff that we want in our relationships, in our internal being. And when we don't sin, we go against that wiring and we find ourselves pursuing something we can never really quite find. The next few messages are really uh, about Jesus pressing more deeply into this whole topic of religion. And, and I want to I say this, Jesus in these next few passages, the next few weeks that we're talking, is not trying to reform religion. He's trying to destroy it and replace it with himself <clears throat> and with good news. And so the question we're going to be looking at the next few weeks is what does that look like in relation to our faith as we live it? And I think as we look at that, we're going to get a more accurate view of God. We're going to discover more freedom. We're going to see lenses that we have lived through that we didn't even recognize we were living through. And God's going to say, I want you to take those off because that shows you who I am in a way that isn't really true. In this story... Some people refer to this story, uh, this, this account of Jesus as, as an illustration of Jesus living outside of sacred space. And what they mean by that, I, I don't like that term, but what they mean by that is this is one of the first examples where we get to see Jesus outside of a ministry teaching uh, going to church, going to synagogue type of an environment. And we oftentimes refer to church and those things as sacred space. I, I frankly don't like that term because sacred space is everywhere we are because God is with us everywhere we are. But, but nonetheless, we get to see Jesus for the first time outside of a, quote, sacred space. He's just with people. He's at a party. He's hanging out in the market square. He's not even doing a bunch of ministry. He's just hanging with people. And this passage, I think, is so profound for us because it gives us this amazing glimpse of what it means to live as friends with faith in a certain area of our lives, and, and it also shows us just a, a beautiful picture again of, of how deep and how persistent and how pursuing the love of God is. Now, in order to understand it better, I think we need to understand the characters. The first character introduced, introduced is Levi. He's a tax collector, it says, right? Now, now, other places we find out that Levi is actually uh, Matthew, 
He's one of the followers of Jesus. He's the guy who wrote the Gospel of Matthew, one of the eyewitness accounts. But a lot of people think the reason why he's introduced here as Levi is because it was a little bit of almost a sarcastic term being used against him. More than likely, he was of the Israel Jewish tribe of Levi, which was the tribe that did all the religious leadership for the, for the whole nation. And so they think it's possibly being used as, almost as a... As a is a sarcastic term because this tax collector, him being a tax collector and a Jew, meant that he was excommunicated from the synagogue because he had aligned himself with the pagan occupiers and was an oppressor rather than a brother anymore. And the way you became a tax collector was rather interesting in that day. It's not, it's not like now you apply for the IRS and you become a tax collector, Right? In that day, you, you basically, they opened the positions for bidding. The Roman government opens positions for bidding, and everybody submitted bids. And the person who, got, who submitted the highest bid, who said, I can raise X amount of dollars for you out of this area, got the bid. And then the way they, they were bound to give that money to Rome, whether they made it or not, and so they went to the people, and their profit margin was how much more they could get out of the people than what they said they would give the Roman government. So there was just tons of corruption. It wasn't like, you know, we joke about IRS and lawyers, and I found out in early service that there was somebody who has a friend who's a lawyer for the IRS. We joke about that, right? But in this setting, the, the, the tax collectors were more like the IRS and the mob combined. You know, sometimes it's easy for us to picture Jesus' disciples and who he has is with just these nice, pretty, painted faces that have perfect plastic surgery and perfect hair, and they're just really nice and really sweet and kind people. You've got to picture this tax collector, this Levi, this person who Jesus invites to follow him as a guy who has bodyguards, a guy who is rough, a guy who will do whatever it takes to make as much money as he can because tax collectors were powerful and wealthy people because they would squeeze people and manipulate people for all that they could get in that day. In fact, Jesus in another place in Matthew 18, 17 is talking about church discipline and he, he talks about people in the church who, who have fallen off the wagon of faithfulness and need to be brought back and there's this process, this patient process of trying to help correct them and if they refuse to be corrected and it's really, really severe, Jesus says, treat them like a pagan and a tax collector. Now, I think we could talk about that a little bit later in relation to the story as well of how Jesus really means that to be, but but nonetheless, this guy was a horrible guy in the eyes of anybody who was a Jew. On the other hand, you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees were actually kind of like a, the, the most common religious and, and in a sense also a political party of the day. They were the ones who held the traditional values of Jewish life, Jewish religion, and Jewish culture. They were the common man's political party. And who, they were the ones trying to protect that way. And the way you became a Pharisee was... Well, if you thought taking ACTs and SATs or LSATs or MCATs or whatever you took to get into school or grad school, if you thought that was hard, it was nothing compared to the process of becoming a Pharisee. They had to take rigorous written exams, rigorous uh, oral exams. They had to study months, even years, to learn everything they needed to even apply. And then when they applied, they had to pay, a, they had to pay the scribe who was the head of that 
group of Pharisees a large sum to even be able to apply. And then when they finally got accepted, the the rigors of the training and the expectations for performance and and, and memorization went even further. And they they were this group of people that was, they were a closed group. They were a Puritan-like group. They were the separatists. They were the ones who were telling everybody how they should live, but not associating with anybody who didn't live like them. And it was very hard to be a part of them. The scribes, who I kind of alluded to, who were the heads of these groups, were, were the people who were the stars of like the Pharisee group. And they, they over time, through, through learning and, and proving themselves, by, by the time they got to age 40, if they were good enough, they might be allowed to establish their own group of people. And they'd get to write books and they'd get to collect all the fees for people applying to them. The scribes were wealthy, wealthy, influential people. They were the rock star religious leaders and political leaders of the Jewish culture during that day. And there was competition. There was even fragmentation between the various scribes and groups, it was you know competition like OSU and Michigan fighting each other, who's best, or or you know different denominations thinking they have exclusive claims and fighting each other and arguing it. I mean, there was that same kind of a culture among the Pharisees and the scribes in that day. But the scribes were the ones who interpreted the Bible and how we should live that in detail. I mean, they went to great details, and that's really the tendency of religion. The tendency of religion is to spell out things clearly enough so that you feel like you know everything you need to know in order to control your own destiny to save yourself, to be good enough, to live right, to be free, to be healed, to be whole. You have to know everything in detail to do to control that. And the result then and the result still today with people who struggle with this, being a Pharisee or being in religion, which is all of us to a certain extent if we're in church, is that we like to interpret the behavioral rules and oftentimes we take them beyond what the Bible actually says. And that, again, is one of the reasons why we want to go through this series and spend so much time looking at Jesus because it's so easy for us to write rules and think things about Jesus beyond what the Bible says that sometimes we need to pull back and see who the real Jesus is and shed some of those things because they become weights in our lives. So what we see in this story today is we see the interaction between polar opposites. We see the the despised, hated Levite, the traitorous enemy of the Jews, who's a tax collector. And we see the the Puritans over here who are describing exactly what you need to be to be pure, and they will not mix. And Jesus walks right in to the middle of that situation. And in so doing, and what he, what he demonstrates for us in this interaction is, is breaking one of the greatest strongholds that religion has over our lives. And in so doing, he shows us a freedom and a power to live in a way like we've never been able to live. And he also gives us some reasonable boundaries in how we should live like that. So Jesus, and if you really think about where he's at now in his ministry, is really this up-and-coming curiosity He's got a huge following. And so if we think about all these groups of scribes and Pharisees, many who probably had traveled from nearby cities from all over Galilee and Judea to visit this guy because they've heard about him, some of them are probably there because the scribes are going, gee, this could be a really cool gig to get involved. Maybe I want to go follow this guy because if I can become him, he'll 
cast out demons. I'm going to have a lot of followers. I'm going to be really wealthy. And there's other ones who are there because they're jealous and they're trying to prove a way to discredit him. And there's others who just didn't even know. And they're there checking him out. And they're shocked by what Jesus is doing because Jesus, in, follow, in, in choosing his disciples, he doesn't go through this long vetting process, this, this, this testing and this. He just chooses them. And in the story, he's chill, still choosing them. But in the eyes of the Pharisee, this, Pharisees, this story and this instance where Jesus chooses Levi goes from what they would probably were already thinking was hilariously ridiculous way to choose followers to shocking because of who he picks. And Jesus is communicating to us that in religion, you have to work hard to belong. You have to perform well to get in. But in Jesus' world of good news, not religion, Jesus comes to you and chooses you. In fact, in Christian theology, there's this doctrine called election, and that's basically what that means, that Jesus is coming to you, pursuing you, not saying, come to me and pay your money and be vetted and do all. He's coming to you right where you are at, and he's choosing every single one of you in here. That's who Jesus is. And it's shocking if he's choosing you and you're one who's caught in religion, sometimes it's going to be offensive to you like it was to the Pharisees when he lived out this day before them because he's choosing even the Pharisees if they want to follow. He's giving them the opportunity. But Jesus calls Levi. He doesn't do it by having a private meeting with him. He doesn't pull him aside and talk him through, okay, Levi, if you want to follow me, you have to repent of this, this, and this, and this, and here's the requirements, here's the job description, here's what you have to do, and you need to demonstrate commitment for a while, and then I'll, then I'll choose you and accept you. No, he just walks up to Levi in the public square at his tax booth with his bodyguard standing there and a couple guys standing around who he's, who he's milking for their taxes, trying to make a profit off of, and they're probably really angry but trying not to be too angry because they know this guy holds all the power and they they're just frustrated and, and Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. Right out there in front of everybody. Can you imagine if that were the today's world? Everybody with their cell phone cameras clicking pictures of Jesus, recording it, the, the Facebook and the YouTube and the Twitter viral headlines just pop up like crazy. Jesus, the great healer, loses his mind. He picks a traitor as his follower. He doesn't vet him. He doesn't do anything. And the viral postings don't stop there. Because as we see in this story, and as we look even further in the Luke story, account of this, he goes to this great big party. Levi invites Jesus and all of his followers. Remember, that's probably a group of over 100 people. Levi goes out and invites all of his friends. Picture who his friends are. Think about it. Who are his friends? His friends are the pagan rulers. They're the guys walking around with all the bling and the tats and the muscle, the, the, the steroid muscle bodyguards. They're the, they're the drug dealers. They're the, I mean, they're the riffraff of town. They're the conniving ones. And Jesus is at this party with them. And I'm sure that that party, that there was language that was offensive to religious people. 
I'm sure that I'm sure that with an open bar there were things going on and people drinking and getting inappropriate with that. I'm sure that there were women with slits a little bit higher in their dresses than they should be and necklines too low and men's eyes and comments going places where they shouldn't go. And Jesus is in the midst of them eating and drinking with them in relationship with them. Picture the scribes and the Pharisees. This is a big party. So it's not just in the house because the houses weren't bad. There, it was, it was all around the yard. It was up on the rooftop. It was everywhere. The scribes sitting across the street, folding their arms, frowns on their faces, talking back and forth. Some of them are just shocked because they were starting to think, maybe I should follow this guy. And now they're going, I don't know if I should follow him. What's the deal? And others are just going, hey, we got the ammo now to discredit this guy. And they're trying to pull Jesus' disciples away from this and going, hey, why is Jesus eating with sinners? Eating and drinking with sinners. And the disciples are probably going, ask him. And eventually, as we know from this account and the Luke account, they actually get Jesus' attention. They ask him and, and they say, why do you eat with and drink with sinners? And they say it with a disdainful sarcasm. And Jesus in this passage is violating one of the most sacred rules of religion then and now. He's doing so blatantly. And in doing this, he's inviting us to follow him in living in the same kind of grace-filled, connected, relationally connected life that he's demonstrating to us. You see, the fear in religion is that you will become like those that you spend time with. And and there's a little bit of truth in that, but for most people caught in religion, here's the way that gets interpreted. It gets interpreted that you shouldn't spend time with people in environments where they are sinning. You should be separate. You should be standing across the street. You shouldn't be with them. And notice when you look at this passage that Jesus doesn't disagree with the critique of the Pharisees. The Pharisees say they're sinners. Jesus doesn't disagree. He doesn't excuse their sin. He doesn't say, ah, oh, you know, Susie's a prostitute. She was abused as a child. She's had a rough life. He doesn't make excuses for the sin. Ah, oh, Joe, he, you know, he's, he's a thug, but you know what? He was abused by his dad. He, he doesn't make excuses. He just simply says, It's not the healthy. His response is almost like saying, I know what the facts are. What are we going to do about it? And he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And in that, Jesus is using this tender language toward one party. And he's matching the kind of sarcastic, disdainful tone of of the Pharisees at the same time, because the Pharisees just don't realize that they're sick. You see, the Pharisees and and religion causes us to not be able to see the disconnect between our need for control, our need to uh, define everything and have all the questions tightly answered, to perform well, and we, we don't see when we're caught in religion the disconnect between that and the mission we're given to fulfill to be a blessing, to be a light to the nations, to to be examples of the Creator's love 
towards people around us. And that's the case still today. We find it in church all the time. Just a couple years ago in a, in a meeting I was in, there was a, this whole topic came up and one of the people said, you know, we shouldn't send, spend time with people at parties and we shouldn't socialize with gatherings where sinners are and we certainly, certainly shouldn't invite them into our homes and, and that goes on into the whole, we should never have our kids in public school. We should, and, and there's legitimate reasons to, to, to do Christian school, but a lot of reasons we have for it are, are, tend to be wrong. They tend to be religious. And so I brought up a passage like this in that environment. I said, well, what did Jesus do? And the response was, well, we're not like Jesus, so we can't go there. Now, that's, that sounds funny, but, but what that statement does is, is, it, is it nullifies what we've talked about earlier in Mark. The fact that Jesus came in the flesh, God came in the flesh, this, what we call in Christian theology the doctrine of the Incarnation. To say that we can't live like Jesus nullifies that entire teaching of the Bible. And it nullifies even further, it ignores completely the fact that Jesus says, and Paul says, I want you to be like Jesus. I want you to imitate him. I want you to follow him. And so when we struggle through religion, the question then becomes, well, How do we fulfill the Great Commission? How do we love people? How do we love people who are far from God and reach them? Well, in the religious mindset, it just simply ends with, well, if they come to my work and they ask, then I'll answer a question. Or we just need to attract them. Do you hear the us and them language of religion? Religion always has an us and them language. And then we, go on, then we go on, if we're caught in religion, we say, if they make a decision to follow Jesus, then I'll be more than an acquaintance, I'll be a, I'll be a friend. You see, in religion, the, minds, the mission of the church becomes standing across the street, arms folded or holding up a banner, proclaiming the truth. Trying to, in one way, sometimes it becomes the, the attempt to humiliate people in their shame and their sin enough so that they become broken enough to follow. And life in religion becomes very separated. It becomes very impersonal. Because in the religious world, one's own personal purity and performance is more important than love. And we're more afraid of being influenced by the culture then we are trusting of the Holy Spirit's love in us and through us to cause us to be the influencers in the culture through relationship and friendship. But you see, it's not just religious people who, study, who, who struggle with religion. And Jesus isn't just attacking religion from the paradigm of the people who are overly, overly religious. Irreligious people, unchurched people, people who aren't sure about faith, don't want to come to church, It's religion that still drives them as well. Because on the one hand, they don't want to be a part of church because they know they can't measure up and they can't perform well enough. Or maybe they've let that one go, but they see the disconnect between religion and love. And they go, just doesn't make sense. And so what we see, especially with the people who make a disconnect between religion and love, is we see them trying to define love and define compassion in so many naive and misguided ways in trying to find love. You see, religion is the controlling paradigm for, I think, almost all of us that we fight with. 
And that's the reason, whether we're, whether we're far from God or whether we're trying, we're really good Christians. It doesn't matter. Religion is the controlling paradigm. And that's the reason Jesus fights against it so much. You know, paradigm's a big word. Paradigm is one of those words that, that basically means, uh, in its broadest, highest definition, it's almost a synonym for worldview. It's one of those things that you think and you believe so much that you don't even consciously think about it. You see the world red because you have red lenses on and you don't even know you have red lenses. It's just the way it's always been. It's, it's almost something that's assumed. And so that's one of the reasons why at Quest, when we talk about discipleship with the end in mind with our children and with adults, we want to challenge and explicitly reveal what our worldview is and examine that to take that thing from unconscious to conscious for us to look at it so that we can go through things like this series and say, well, this is my perception of Jesus, but this is the real Jesus. And man, I got to take those lenses off and do, and do that different. And my son recently has been applying for colleges and he wrote an essay that, that to me is a, is a wonderful example of um, combating a paradigm, uh, and actually one that's reflective of, I think, a very common irreligious cry for compassion in the U.S. today and in the world today. I edited it a little bit down, um, so I'm not giving you the whole one, but, but it's about tolerance, and this is what he wrote. He says, tolerance is the, in the, is the word that is at the center of many of the conflicts in the world today. Whether it is about religion, sexuality, or culture, tolerance is the issue on at least one side of the argument, if not both sides. And then he goes on and gives a couple of current examples of the different poles of people arguing for tolerance. And, and, he, and he proposes this question, he says, but is the popular understanding of tolerance, is the way most people practice tolerance and think about tolerance, is it really the right solution to today's world of conflict? Tolerance is variously defined as respect, acceptance, and appreciation of the rich diversity of our world's cultures, our forms of expression, and ways of being human. It is fostered by knowledge and openness and communication and freedom of thought and consciousness and belief. And those are different ways of it, it's defined. And he goes on to say, while the definitions are noble in their intent of respecting various beliefs, this is where he starts to challenge the paradigm. And while he doesn't talk about Christ and Christianity in this essay, it's, it's from his Christian beliefs. While the definitions are noble in their intent of respecting various beliefs, the idea of tolerance, he says, is completely insufficient in social practice when it comes to the issues of morality. By nature, law imposes morality. Yet when legislation or current laws surrounding controversial issues such as the practice of sexuality, definition of marriage, the use of drugs, abortion, euthanasia, all sorts of things are discussed, the people who believe in a moral line that is more strict or narrow are often incorrectly labeled intolerant. Moral differences do not, cannot equate to intolerance. When the modern day popular practice of tolerance is taken to its logical conclusion, it leads to anarchy. And he doesn't say this, but be simply because nobody can say anything's right or wrong anymore. Furthermore, the modern-day practice of tolerance eliminates diversity of ideas by alternately snuffing out both new beliefs and old beliefs. 
And then he gets personal in it. He says, from my personal experience, I know it's possible to to disagree with a person strongly about issues, yet still have a relationship. My inner circle of friends, and he he relates, he had a really, really close-knit group of friends in Oregon, so he's still talking about them before we moved here. My inner circle of friends included a young man from Brazil adopted by politically liberal parents with eclectic spirituality, a Pacific Islander of conservative religious parents, a son of earthy, intellectual, secular humanist hobby farmers, first-generation Mexican-Americans, and second-generation hippies. I guess they have become a new ethnic group. (laughs) And Eugene, it kind of is. Although I do not agree with all of the beliefs of my friends, hearing them out has helped me both better understand other people as well as solidify my own values. And he goes on and and, and nails it down. He says, while the idealized definition of tolerance could cultivate diversity and new ideas in the context of individualism, we do not live in isolation. Especially in a free society under democracy, it is impossible for tolerance not to come into conflict with laws regarding morality. In such situations, the popular practice of tolerance becomes an antagonistic tool rather than a peacemaking tool. In that light, tolerance needs to be redefined as relationship above differences. And I couldn't be more proud of the close because relationship above differences is something I say a lot and it's a value statement actually for Quest Community Church. So it just proves that our kids sometimes pick things up from us. And Jesus with Levi is illustrating what relationship above differences means, what it looks like. Relationship above differences is the essence of grace and love. It is where the power of God is most profoundly found. Even in irreligion, it is still about performance or the inability to perform. In fact, how many of you as a Christian, uh, it happens to me a lot more probably maybe than you as a pastor because, you know, everybody asks what you do. You know, it used to be in Eugene, I could say I'm a consultant and I could still have a long conversation before they found out I was a consultant to churches. And the conversation changed and became awkward. But when they find out you're Christian, a lot of times, here's the way the conversation goes. They clean up their language or they apologize for the swearing. Then maybe if you get a little bit deeper with them, they start talking about, well, you know, I I live a pretty good life and I'm probably okay. And and then maybe the conversation goes from there and it goes to the point of, maybe they'll ask you a few questions about dilemmas of faith, like, you know, what about good and evil and healing and all those kinds of things. And they'll just try to, they'll try to get all those questions that they need answered, that they think they need answered in order to be able to come to faith. But it'll all be just kind of this heady, distant intellectual debate. And, and maybe when they get a little more honest and the relationship goes a little bit deeper, they'll talk about maybe the bad habits they have that they wish if they could just conquer the, the sins that they had, if they just could get over them, then, then maybe they wouldn't be so far from God and God would accept them. And, uh, and they, they stay at a distance in this skeptical faith, in this protection mode. And that's where Levi was because of religion and still until Jesus came and he experienced him. You see, again, what really drives religion, whether you are religious or irreligious, what really drives you is the need to define and allow each of us to control reality, to save ourselves, to protect our identity, because we can't stand living with guilt and shame. And Jesus, a couple stories ago that we looked at, reaches out and touches the leper, and today he goes one step further to, the, to this worst situation where he reaches out and he touches the most traitorous, greedy enemy that could be defined in Israel during that day. 
a former priest become tax collector. And it's this powerful initiative of love. It's not just inviting him to believe. It's inviting him to follow, to actively engage in faith by serving, to have a purpose. He goes up to him and invites him to have a purpose, taps into that sense of divine desire in all of us to make a difference with our lives and the way he calls him. And he breaks down the walls of religion. And Levi experiences Jesus. Can, Can you picture that? Can you see how profound and amazing that would be? The worst person you can imagine, Jesus goes up to him and says, follow me in a public place. He identifies with him from the very beginning. I don't think any of us here could be characterized as being worse than Levi. Can you picture him coming to you? And doing the same thing to you. Follow me. Now. Make a difference. Now. You don't have to believe fully yet, but come, serve with me. Make a difference. Jesus, his extravagant kindness, in the midst of being honest about sin, It's because of his relationship of love. It's because he somehow powerfully cuts through that by his pursuit of Levi, by his intensity, by his public public ownership of him, by just being persistent with him. The Levi understands, this guy wants me and he knows who I am. It's not contingent upon my performance. And Jesus is inviting us to be that same way with the people around us. Instead of just waiting for them to ask, to pursue. Instead of waiting for them to come to us with faith questions, for us to show extravagant, undeserved, amazing acts of love to the people around us to cut through the crud so that they know our love for them and the love of God for them is not contingent upon who they are so that we can go past that glass barrier of shallowness in our relationships, that people will be honest and know that we know who they really are and we still love them. It takes intentionality. Sometimes it happens fast, like, like with Levi. There's just a turn. And sometimes it's slow. You know, I find myself, uh, as I was writing this, thinking about where am I at and living this now here in, 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 in Ohio since we've been here almost three years now. And I'm still getting to know people. Doggone it, I keep running into churched Christians who are great followers of Christ everywhere I go, and I want to find some people who aren't. And I find them, and I, I still, we still go through this whole rigmarole of the, the questions and the distance and, the, and trying to break that down. And, and, and I love doing that. I'm working on that. I remember one of the bigger breakthroughs that I had in Oregon. Again, sometimes it takes time. It took seven, eight years for this one to happen. I was working as, a, as the president of an HOA, which you never want to do. Just never, if you want life to be horrible, just to become a president of a homeowner association. And there were just tons of conflict. And then half the people in my neighborhood were not only just antagonistic by nature, they were just also antagonistic towards anybody who was Christian. 
And several of them in particular, when you'd, you'd bring up anything Christ, you'd say, Happy Easter, even though Easter isn't a religious term. They would say, Happy Holidays. It's not Happy Easter. Merry Christmas, oh man, they about fell off their chairs with anger, you know, and stuff. And it was that kind of antagonism. And, but it was, it was the persistent offering of extravagant kindness, even when people in meetings just called me all sorts of foul names, even when a guy calls me up the first time he ever calls me, and I had only been president of the association for two weeks and hadn't even been a signer on the account yet, calls me up and accuses me of embezzlement. It's like, how can I embezzle? I can't even sign on the account. Um, you know, I mean, just that kind of crazy stuff, but, but persistently pushing back with love and kindness. By the end, one of the most irreligious, anti-Christian people's heart broke and started to be open and soft and seek. And it's just like Jenny's story. We don't see the closing of the deal to follow Jesus and Jenny's story, but we do see Jenny responding to God and doing what he says. And for whatever reason that day, God knew that just a high from the person that this girl had been so mean to was going to soften her heart and change her. And God wants to lead us into the same things. He wants us to have that same kind of joy in our life. Now, maybe we ought to talk about some of the boundaries that Jesus sets in this. Because it's not that Jesus is just saying, go to all the parties, drink and have a good time. Right? I mean... First of all, it's clear from the story that Jesus ate and drank, but he did not, in spite of the people's, the religious leaders' sound bites, he did not get drunk. He did not succumb to gluttony. And so I want to say this, you know, if you have a weakness in that area where you're prone to alcoholism or, or, or drunkenness, then you know what? You probably shouldn't do it. Not because you need to do it to protect yourself, because it's awful if you sin and Jesus rejects you if you sin because he doesn't. Even if you fall back, he still loves you. He still accepts you. He still loves you. He hasn't changed his position to you. He's still pursuing you. But because Jesus' invitation in our lives is to wholeness and healing and health and falling back into it really isn't wholeness and healing and health in your relationships, is it? Or for you. So you don't do it for religion. You don't say no to it for religious reasons. You say no to it for healthy reasons. And if someone around you struggles with it, then don't say, I've got freedom and I can drink around you because Jesus is teaching us as well and here in other places that our freedoms, there is freedom to do that, but our freedoms are always subservient to love. If it's not loving to do it around somebody, if it's tempting to them, we don't do it. And that probably should affect the way we think about our political protests a little bit more too in America. You see, people controlled by religion are more concerned about not sinning than they are about the mission of God and showing love to people. And Jesus shows us that following him is first and foremost about undeserved, grace-filled, kindness, extravagant love that leads to deep relationships. And Jesus is also showing in this passage another boundary. He doesn't do it alone. He's going into these settings, and whenever we see him going into these settings, he's going into the settings with his disciples. He's going into settings with other people. He's not going into these settings alone where he's going to stand on his own and be tempted on his own, and he's going to be the isolated one, and everybody's going to say, why don't you just go for it, Jesus? Get drunk. And nobody's there to, I mean, he just doesn't do that. 
I think one of the interesting things of today's story is, can you imagine what a challenge it was in the story for the disciples to be there that day? I mean, remember, this is Capernaum. This is the hometown of a number of his disciples. They had been squeezed and offended and used by Levi, and they probably hated this guy and his thugs like all, like all get out. And Jesus walks along. He says, follow me. And he says, he doesn't tell them what he's going to do. He says, come follow me. And now all of a sudden, the thug is one of them. And Jesus is leading his disciples in a group together to learn to show this kind of extravagant love. I want the joy and the freedom for each one of us to be able to live that way, to see God's power extravagantly displayed in that way in other people's lives, to see relationships that we never thought would ever even darken the doors of considering faith, to open their hearts and say, I want to serve with you, I want to go with you. And we can do that in practical ways. We can do it by inviting people to our small groups. But can you imagine, can you imagine with me for a minute, how many people at Levi's house of Levi's friends that day would have gone to the synagogue? Probably not very many, right? They probably wouldn't have darkened the door of the church. This is just a little aside. I want to invite those of you who are in the, small group, in the small groups we call quest groups, but even beyond that, those of you who have friendships here, because the, small, the quest groups aren't the end game. It's all about relationship. We just provide the quest groups because we think that's an intentional way of doing it. We encourage you to be involved in it. But the end game is doing things with our friends together to reach people for Christ. Introducing our friends far from God, caught in religion, caught in shame, caught in the alienation of religion and love that they see, and letting them experience us and our friends and experiencing it differently. But they may not do it if we're meeting with all of our groups at the church. Can I encourage you maybe to to move your group to your home? And one of the reasons that doesn't happen is because we don't do what Levi did, did here. Levi, the very first day he's saved, the very first day he follows God, opens his heart, opens his house, and he demonstrates hospitality. And there's some of you who don't feel ready to lead a group, but you can serve, you can open your home. You can show hospitality. You can invite all of your friends who need to know God, need to be free of their shame, to your home to meet some of your friends here. And you can host a group. The reason a lot of our groups don't meet in the homes is because the leaders don't have the energy to both lead a group and clean their houses. So, you know, it's just one of those practical things. And I want to encourage some of you to, to maybe think about doing that. The second invitation is maybe even how we plan things around here. There's a wonderful church that I worked with in Lodi, California, pastored by a dear friend of mine. And every time they plan an event, they'd plan men's retreats and uh, they, invo- they, they invite their, their unchurched, unsaved friends to plan the event with them. They get, they get friendships started, people coming to Christ. They go on a mission trip, whether it's to their local uh, food bank or whether it's to Mexico or someplace else or to an urban center. And they take people who don't know Christ with them. That's what Jesus is demonstrating to us today. Levi didn't believe correctly yet in who Jesus was. He maybe wasn't even sure yet, but Jesus said, follow me. And he said, you kidding me? I'll follow you. 
Levi might have even seen it at that point as a way to make more money because the scribes were stinking wealthy. His motivations may not have even been correct, and yet Jesus invited him to go on mission with him. Can we do the same? Can we invite people when we go serve at Warm who don't know Christ to go serve with us because they want to make a difference? Can we tap into that divine purpose that God wants in their life and encourage them and draw them to it? Can we, can we take them on mission trips with us even to Russia or wherever we go? Can we do that kind of stuff? Can we invite them more into our groups? That's the invitation for us, but I want to leave you with this. Where are those areas of, of shame? Where are those areas of pain? Where are those religious walls that you need to just spend some time thinking about this story today and allow Jesus to come break through those things for you as well, to make him real to you? Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are just this amazing God who cuts through all the crap, who just goes straight through the religiousness and the objections from religion for those who don't follow and don't believe and are skeptical that you cut through all of that stuff to show us this beautiful image and beautiful invitation to freedom that is so extravagantly loving. Lord, I pray for each one here, whether, whether they are caught in religion and they're trying to perform, trying to be good enough and holding you off at a distance because they don't feel good enough but really trying hard to perform well enough, I pray that you would cut through that today and that there would be rest that would come to their hearts and their souls. Rest in that love that you bring. For, for those here that uh, have seen the disconnect between religion and love, Lord, I pray that you'd cut through that as well. That you would show them and invite them into the freedom and the peace and the joy of instead of holding you off in skepticism, of joining you, the real Jesus, not religion, not what other people think, not what we're all tempted to be religious, but to be in relationship with you, to love you, to serve you, to follow you, to discover how great, how amazing, how perfect how full your love is. Thank you for being here, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you, if uh, you have an area that came up in your mind where there's an area you just need God to break through that, you recognize it this morning, I want to invite you to grab a friend next door and say, would you pray for me in this? A friend right next to you, or if you don't have somebody that you want to grab, there'll be a couple people standing here. God bless. Have a great week.